Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of The History of Gear, we talk with Bob Anderson, founder and editor of Runner's World. We talk about how he started the magazine, the evolution and massive growth of the sport, and how he has introduced millions of people to running and improved health and wellness. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase. And uh, for another episode of our uh, History of Gear series today, um, and on this podcast, we talk about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Um, and I, I can't think of a better person to come on and talk about the history of the industry than a journalist, um, an author, um, editor, founder of Distance Running News, Runner's World, as well as a number of other publications that I don't have on my list right here, but we'll go through um, and talk about more specifically. Bob Banderson, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much, Chase. Good to be here. Um, I just, I, I love talking with journalists specifically when we're talking about the history of the sports and outdoor space, because you're actively documenting what was happening at the time. And, and I think you have a unique perspective, um, than even a brand, right? Cause brands get tunnel vision and, and they're very focused on what they're doing, um, versus you, you, you probably had to look at the industry as a whole and, and you've seen it evolve over, over the decades. So I just appreciate your, your perspective, um, when it comes to how our industry has changed and evolved over time and want to get into a little bit of what that was like for you. Um, really pioneering this, I, I really the, the, the journalist space from, from a running perspective, um, and the influence you've had. So I, I just appreciate you being on, um, yeah, thanks so much. but I want to talk first a little bit about just your connection to sport and, and the outdoors in a way, um, what was your initial connection to, to sport or athletics or activity? Did, was there an initial moment for you growing up that you got connected to activity or sport? Well, you know, this all started because I became very addicted to running. So instead of starting out wanting to do a magazine, uh, this whole journey started uh, because uh, at a very young age, age 15, um, I started running and I had some good success from the beginning. Like at uh, age 15, I was able to run a 208.5 uh, half mile. Back in those days, it was miles uh, instead of meters. Uh, and I just fell in love with running. And uh, 
And at a very early age, I, I think at age 17, I uh, uh, also decided that I wanted to run the Boston Marathon. And my high school coach knew nothing about uh, marathon training. And so uh, I was able to get some addresses of some people who were uh, involved in, in the running scene in those early days. And that was back in the days when there was only a few hundred runners at the Boston Marathon um, compared to today. I mean, there's like 30,000. Um, and um, so I started writing people, asking them about training ideas. So I started collecting all this information about uh, marathon training. And, um, and, and the reception that I got when I sent this letter out, and it basically said, I'm 17 years old. I want to run the Boston Marathon. And can you help me? Oh, my gosh. I think almost 90% of all the letters I sent out, I got replies back. Mm. So I had all this information about training for the marathon. And here I am, 17 years old. And so I decided, wow, if I have this interest, I'm sure there must be other people that also have an interest in like running a marathon. And so, um, uh, yeah, with a little bit of background, my, my father published a book, self-published a book. Uh, so I had a little bit of knowledge about, uh, you know, not really a magazine, but let's say how to publish a book. Um, and, and the idea of going and picking up pages at the printer and putting them together and, and, um, so, so I did have that knowledge, that background, and, and in fact, actually was very exciting um, to be side by side with, with my dad as he did Opportunity Index. And again, this is all way before the internet. Mm -hmm. So um, back in those days, all we had was the printed material, right? Magazines, newspaper, books. And so literally, I had all this information I had a little, a little bit of knowledge of publishing. And so on a school bus on the way to a cross-country meet in October of 1965, I told my best friend, I said, you know what? I think um, we should start a magazine. And we could call it, and I thought for a minute, Distance Running News. <laughs> and... In January, we came out with the first issue and, uh, of, of Distance Running News, and people loved it. And you were how old at the time? Uh, so I was 17 when I came up with the idea. The first issue came out in 1966, January, and I was 18 at the time. Wow. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the origins of that, that publication, but I, I'm curious in getting into really the state of the sport as well. I, I guess who was running at the time? What, I mean, what in like, did you see other people running? Was it, a, you know, was it being offered at your school and that's how you discovered it? Like, how did you even discover that running was a possibility? Cause I, I mean, you, you know, this space better than anyone. Like what was the state of running at the time that you were getting it? Oh, I tell you, I, I mean, very few people were running in those days. And like I said, even races like the Boston Marathon only had a few hundred runners and they were very diehard runners. Um, there were like pockets of people that were running. Um, 
like in San Francisco, there were some people because we had the beta breakers. We had the Dipsy race. Uh, so there was a few races around. But like I was in Kansas at the time. And um, actually, I started running uh, on De February 16th, 1962. And I started running um, because my dad was in the Navy. And one of the things he had to do being in the Navy was to run a, a mile. And um, he, he would talk about that experience. Um, and, um, and I can remember how exciting it was to, to hear his stories about doing a little bit of running in the Navy. And so uh, on February 16th, 1962, I attempted to run a mile. And, you know, I was only, what, you know, 14 or something. And, um, and I couldn't run a mile, even, even as a kid. And at the same time, you know, you, you saw, I mean, there was not people on the street running. I mean, particularly uh, a man, my dad was like in his 40s at that point, to, to have to put on running shorts and go out to the street didn't exist. And uh, I mean, basically, uh, you know, there, there, there was very few people running. Now, Dr. Kenneth Cooper came out with a book, Aerobics, and that got a lot of people out jogging. Um, before that, uh, President John F. Kennedy put out a challenge, the 50-mile hike. And, um, and some, because at that point, America was overweight, um, smoking, drinking. Um, uh, and John F. Kennedy did put out the challenge about, you know, doing um, uh, the 50-mile walk. But it was a walk, not a run. Mm. Uh, also, along that period of time, at the 1964 Olympic Games in Tokyo, Billy Mills um, won the 10,000 meters, got a lot of attention. Um, but again, running was not even close to what it is today. I mean, it, very few people. Uh, I even can remember running as a kid. One time uh, it was snowing. I was out doing a training run and um, a person in a car came by and said, where, where are you headed? I said, I'm out running. No, 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 no. Where, where are you headed? I'll give you a ride. I said, no, I'm out training. <laughs> but she said, well, but it's snowing. I said, yeah. And um, she just could not understand the fact that a person would be outside training and that I was just I wasn't headed any, I just hadn't, I was headed to the turnaround point. And, uh, but she just could not understand why I was not interested in getting a ride to where I was going. So, uh, I mean, at that point in time, the number of people that were running, like I said, very, few, very few, very few. Wow. And of course, this is pre pre Nike, pre, you know, pre the, the major footwear companies that we really know today that are, that, um, I, I, who were the product companies at that time? Like what, what kinds of shoes were you wearing? Who was making running shoes? If, if anyone was. Well, back in 1962, you know, that's before Phil Knight, um, 
created uh, Blue Ribbon Sports that was mm-hmm. importing uh, ASICs running shoes. Right. Uh, and uh, I think they came about, you know, like maybe 65 and, or 66 in that, in that range. Uh, the shoes that I were wearing were Adidas. Now, Adidas had been around for a number of years. Uh, and uh, Horst Dassler and his brother that had um, Puma, you know, they were around. I mean, primarily they were known for their soccer shoes. Uh, but uh, at the same time, you know, they had some shoes that they called running shoes. Uh, I can remember those first shoes. And um, I mean, <laughs> compared to the shoes today, I mean, they were bad. <laughs> they were very bad. Uh, sometimes like a cork sole. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the shoes were real. And so when Blue Ribbon Sports was started and Phil Knight, um, you know, started importing ASIC shoes right off the bat. I mean, these were shoes and, and the Japanese were, were definitely uh, running back in those days. You know, they had the Tokyo Olympic Games in 64 uh, and ASICs. Um, you know, had uh, created some shoes that were far superior, but they were not known in the United States. So uh, they were brought over here. And I know as soon as they arrived, I can remember getting a pair that uh, Jeff Johnson, who also did some uh, photography for Distance Running News, was selling uh, ASIC shoes out of the the trunk of his car. And um, uh, at events like the Beta Breakers, um, and I can remember, you know, buying a pair for like 10 bucks or something like that. And it was the best shoe I ever had. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. So, uh, the industry back in those days, I mean, there was no such thing as, as, you know, running shorts per se, um, you know, certainly products like goo or what, whatever it may be. I mean, you know, none of that existed. Right. Well, and on the, the journalism side of things, was there any publication prior to distance running news that was just focused on running or were you the first publication? No. There was two other publications. One was track and field news. Mm. Now, track and field news was started by Bert Nelson in 1947. Mm. And uh, it was his love and his brother's love of track and field. Now track and field was definitely a uh, a sport back in those days um track and field has been around for a long long time uh but basically the participants in track and field were high school athletes or college athletes so once you graduated from college you know and if you were not good enough to be on the college team uh you know i mean like master track and field didn't exist uh so track and field news and they had uh, a circulation of about 10,000. And these were, uh, you know, by the time they got to 1966. So they had about 10,000 subscribers. Uh, I, uh, as soon as I started running, I found out about track and field news. And I immediately subscribed to the publication and read every word three or four times. Um, so there was track and field news. There was also a publication called the uh, Long Distance Law. Browning Ross had started that. Um, 
And um, he, I think he started that in the 50s. Um, and it was simply a publication that listed results. But again, back in those days, without the, you know, the internet, the only way to get any results from any race was like through the long distance log. And I immediately subscribed to that. Um, and in fact, actually, uh, I wish I had saved those. He actually, uh, I asked him, you know, I'd like to get information. You know, he was one of the ones that I asked about information about the marathon. He actually sent me copies of the layout boards that he sent to the printer of his publication. Wow. But he did not do uh, articles about people or, I mean, basically it was a listing of the fact there was 34 runners uh, at the, at this particular, you know, the Culver city marathon. Uh, and he, here were the, you know, the top places. Of, of course, there was not any, any mention of ages because that didn't seem to be important. And back in those days, women were not allowed to run more than a half mile. So obviously there was no females participating like in a marathon. Uh, and um, so, yeah, so there was those two publications. I think uh, Browning Ross might've had 4,000 readers or subscribers or whatever. So, uh, when distance running news came on the scene and we actually had articles about training, we had articles about, uh, uh, marathon, you know, the marathons that were there. We had articles about the running shoes that, that did exist. Um, uh, and so we were the, really the first magazine that really was an actual magazine covering the sport of I mean, track and field, not much. The focus that we had was on uh, road racing, even though there wasn't a lot of action in that area. That was our focus. Right. Well, you could see how that, based on what the landscape looked like, your publication seems like it was such a great on-ramp for people who are looking to educate themselves on the space. Is that what resonated for people who ended up subscribing? Was it was it that it, it just appealed to their interests or it was a way for them to get into a space that they were curious about, but didn't know where to get information from. And you, you were able to tell these stories that weren't being told other, other places. What appealed to people? Well, you know, I mean, running and particularly racing is, is very addictive, but it's a positive addiction. At the same time, we know that, you know, running is an activity that, uh, you can easily get injured. Uh, I mean, I mean, people who've gone out for runs have have, have died of heart attacks. Uh, so, it, it you know, those of us that are runners know that um, it's important to be to get educated. It's important to understand the different training ideas. Uh, it, it just that it's important to to understand the sport. And also, you know, because of the fact that the opportunities that existed were track and field, you could run on a track, you could be at a track meet, but there was, I mean, the road racing scene, not just in this country, around the world, just, I mean, it existed, but it was small and, and, and it was limited. Uh, a person that, let's say, started jogging because of the book aerobics, uh, I mean, Basically, they got involved with jogging. They they loved the, the sport as much as I did, 
and then and then what do you do Mm -hmm. i mean because jogging is something that after a while just is somewhat boring racing is really um the the more exciting um aspect of running I, i mean the way i put it it's like writing and never publishing right i mean you can have a lot of enjoyment writing every day and and all of that but if you never publish and so racing was like publishing it was like putting yourself on the line and what distance running news gave people was the information about how to publish how to run a race how to find the race Hmm. um and um and the latest information and that's where right off the bat i mean it was amazing i put out the first issue january of of, uh, 1966 and literally People just started sending sending him money, hmm. <laughs> like like uh, five dollars. Like the subscription was only a dollar, but I would have people send send me five dollars and say, "I love what you're doing. Keep it up." Publishers Here's $5. dream dollars, donors. <laughs> yeah, and that literally, uh, and um, and you know, the first year I mean, we had two issues, January '66 and then July '66. So we had two issues and. Um, we did like $600 the first year. And again, when you're 18 years old, that's a lot of money. And back in those days, you know, I mean, at least a few thousand dollars, right? But it was like, people, what can I do to help? Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that was the whole, uh, the whole feedback, the consensus. What can we do? Because we love what you're doing. Yeah, there was a hole that needed filling, and and you were filling that hole for all these people, this community that had, didn't know it was a community yet. I imagine. That's right. Exactly. Um, I, I think it's interesting, I, and I'm sure you'll have some thoughts on this. But I mean, your contributions, you know, creating distance running news, and and this, you know, the rise of races in different cities around the country. It seems like. I mean, you contributed to the shift in mindset from people thinking that running was something that you just did on a track to running is something you could do anywhere. I don't know if that's like the cultural, it's kind of like you said, right? This person driving nearby or by you saying, where are you going? Right. Cause you, you think of running as something that you do on the track. Is that kind of the shift that was happening at the time? It's well, running something you could do anywhere. Yeah. And, and, and basically, yeah. I mean, yeah. So there was the sport of track and field and yes, there was a few races around already, uh, but yeah, primarily, uh, we really focused on not just running on the track, but getting out on the road and running anywhere, like through the woods, you know. Um, and you know, that was also, you know, back in those days, you know, there wasn't these ultra races that they have now. Um, and um, because see, one thing about it so, so I was a pretty good runner in high school. And when I went to college, Kansas State, even as a, um, you know, like our cross-country team was second at the state meet. We were first in our regional meet. And, uh, and I ran like, um, you know, under 10 minutes for two miles uh, back in those days. When I went to college, I mean, literally every single person on the team was a star from their high school. And that literally I got so discouraged that if I had not had distance running news, I, you know, I might've continued running, but it, it didn't, it didn't seem like there was any 
any place for me. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you know, I was, you know, a, a fairly decent runner. So you could imagine a person, let's say, uh, um, a person who could, you know, run 12 minutes for two miles or whatever it may be. Th- there was, no, there was nothing for us. And so what distance running news brought to the table is that, Hey, there is life after running in high school. There is an activity, there is a sport, and we're going we're gonna to tell you about those little races. Back in those days, there was two road races a year in Kansas. But what we're going to do is that we're going to tell you about those. We're going to tell you how to get there. We're going to tell you how to train for it. And, uh, and then hopefully there's going to be a third race. Hopefully there's going to be a half a dozen races. Hopefully there's going to be a race every weekend, which obviously developed. And but we're going to tell you about it and we're going to say, okay, yeah, you may only be able to run um, a mile in 12 minutes, but there's a place for you and you're going to be able to enjoy it, you know, and uh, and uh, and at the race, you may be given a T-shirt. You may be given. I mean, back in those days, there was hardly any medals. But, you know, today you just finish and you get a medal back in those days. You know, the top three would get a medal. You know, I mean, you would earn your medal by by running faster instead of just finishing. Uh, I do like the approach of getting a medal just by finishing. But anyway, so we're going to tell you there is life. And if you want to get involved with racing, we're going to tell you how to get involved. Right. No, I love that. Um, Can you give me a glimpse into like what starting your own magazine looks like? Obviously you had some, some experience with, with your dad or, or at least under, understood that like printing was a thing publishing was a was a thing um you had someone there to guide you how involved was was your dad in in helping you understand that process where did you go to get get this printed is something is that something he was involved in were you the one printing these i I guess give me a glimpse into you know what your first first uh, magazine like how that even happened you know and how involved or how hands-on were you in that process of actually making them well, my dad being, um, you know, he was a teacher. Uh, he taught drama. Uh, you know, he was uh, a principal at, at a high school. So his thinking of distance running news was, hey, you know, get yourself a real job. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, he was not involved at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, and literally, so I I went. Um, I, so when I was seventeen, again I had this knowledge, and it was uh, of watching my dad. Okay, but uh, so I I went to a essentially a quick print printer, um, offset printer, and I said no. Uh, and also because of the fact that Browning Ross sent me um, layout boards mm. of what he sent to the printer. And so what it was, it was just regular typed copy on uh, layout pages. And he then reduced the size of the type, which actually made it look more like actually like um, like like uh, uh, like uh, well, I worked for a printer for a little while and like line of type. So we actually set everything like, and then you, anyway. Um, so I went to a printer and 
he said, oh, yeah, this is uh, uh, just bring me the layout pages uh, and we'll reduce it down. Uh, so what we did, uh, we typed up the first issue. I had it reduced by, I think, uh, 25%. Uh, and we, we, um, did single sheets and we had, uh, copy on two sides. of. It. So the first issue was five and a half, eight and a half. Um, so it was a half, it was like a, uh, eight, eight and a half by 11 sheet folded in half. And so I had seven of those pages printed and, um, then we would collate the seven pages and fold it in half and then i would run a staple through it uh like a saddle stitch uh a staple through the uh, folded piece and then you would have a 28 page magazine um you know i mean there was we had a couple of uh, black and white photos uh uh one of the first advertisers was uh, blue ribbon sports for asics they were on the back cover um and, um, yeah, so basically, uh, that's how that went as we, as I got more into more photos and things like that, when I went to college, I did find a job at a printer, ag press. And, uh, what I would do, I would work there during the day. I learned more about layout there and, um, and the owner was kind enough to give me a key to the building. Hmm. So uh, as we went into um, six issues per year and a large format, um, the eight and a half by uh, uh, 11 by eight, and a, uh, let's see, eight and a half by 11, um, I actually did the layout there and I, I got more involved and we had light tables and, and the whole bit. So, so basically, I just kind of learned as I went along. That's great. When, when did you see yourself as a journalist in this process? Was there a moment where you felt like, oh, wow, I, I am actually, I'm a journalist. This is my career. Or, or, or did, you, did you, I don't know, did, was there a realization that you happened through that process? Well, as I was getting this information back in 65, in, in, uh, um, and I would come home from school and there would be letters in the post box. And, um, and I would open these letters and, and there would be, oh, my God, here's, a, here's an article about, uh, you know, uh, training. Uh, here was a list of uh, race results. And I started getting this mail. And that was, I mean, for someone who's 17, you know, that's, that's exciting. Uh, and again, I was already addicted to running. I mean, literally, my life was consumed. I actually um, started something called the Marathon Statistics Bureau. And what it was, I was keeping track of, of all these marathon times. And, and even though the Boston Marathon only had a couple of hundred runners, uh, I would actually put these down on note cards and, and all of that. So I can remember as we were going on that school bus and I said to my friend, Dave Zimmerman, that, that I was going to start a magazine. I actually became a journalist and I knew that in October of 1965 at age 17, that 
uh, even though I was a decent runner, I knew and I loved watching uh, Billy Mills win the, the 10,000 meters. Runners like Peter Snell, Herb Elliott uh, were my idols. I mean, I mean, Peter Snell uh, you know, broke the world record for the mile. Uh, Jim Ryan, right there in the state of, of, of um, Kansas, became the first high school kid to run a sub four minute mile. And but I knew that, you know, I at that early age that, you know, I was a good runner, but I was not going to ever make the Olympic team. I was never going to be a world record holder for whatever reason. I just felt that. But I wanted to be able to rub shoulders with world record holders. I wanted to sit in the press box at the Olympic Games, not on the track, but in the press box. Uh, I, I, I had all these visions. And so at the same time, I wanted to tell other people about the sport I loved. I wanted to, in fact, actually, that's the reason why I started all these other magazines, not because I was that interested in cross-country skiing or, or uh, swimming or soccer or whatever. I felt that, hey, I could find people within these other activities that would also be interested in running. Hmm. And, and, and I wanted to tell everybody about the sport that i loved and that was running and that was uh and so so i felt myself wanting not wanting to be that i i just had the sense that as early two months before the first issue came out i knew that this was where i belonged and i was going to do everything in my power to make it work wow um as you look back what what how from a your perspective now how do you what's how would you rate your journalism in those first issues of distance running news how was your writing well you know um so most of the writing um was uh people who contributed articles mm. and so um because i knew that you know at, at that point i mean i've developed skills much beyond where I was at that point. I mean, um, so, so what I did, I sought out people who really knew the sport. And I, and I would say, hey, look, you know, uh, would you be interested in doing an article about diet? Well, I wasn't qualified to do an article about diet, but send me an article and let me look at it. And I would read through the article and say, wow, this is really good information. Because basically, I was looking for articles that I wanted to read. And I felt like if, if, it, if it basically helped me as a runner, then it's going to help other people. So, um, so, so I was more of uh, an editor versus a writer. Hmm. Um, and then I would make sure, you know, that the headline would catch people's attention. I would make sure that it, um, you know, uh, uh, that we would uh, get photographs um, that would contribute and add to the article. Uh, my brother also was an artist, so he would uh, do up some artwork um, for some of the articles. Um, so, so I did very little writing myself. I, I, I was... I was the editor. So I was the editor and publisher uh, and I would put together the articles and I would always be looking for uh, 
articles that were beyond what was people were talking about. Like, for example, master running over you know, 40 plus. Um, you know, I would find somebody that had an interest in that and I would have them write an article. Uh, women's running, even though women could not be, you know, women were not allowed to run more than a half a mile. I found, you know, I found people that would, would, uh, would write about women running as an example and, uh, and, and very well received. That's great. What you, you tasted this initial success, people, um, sending you extra money as a part of their subscription, you know, people responding, getting letters, um, the, your subscriber base is growing, um, you're still in high school, um, you know, kind of at a pivotal, pivotal point, figuring out, oh, am I going to go to college? Where am I going to go? You know, what does my life look after, like after high school? What was your thought process then with, you know, it sounds like you were all in on the publication, um, but it sounds like you also went on to college. What, what did those next few years look like before the publication then became Runner's World in 1970? Yeah, so basically, uh, so I, so the first issue came out, I was a senior in high school, Shawnee Mission West High School in Overland Park, Kansas. First issue came out. Um, the second issue then came out in the summer. So after graduation, um, the second issue came out. Uh, I went to Kansas State uh, and uh, in, in uh, 1967. So, so I uh, enrolled in Kansas State, started in September of 1966, I was already working on, uh, and had already decided to do four issues in 1967, um, and um, had gotten the job there at the printer. So I knew more about layout um, or, or getting more knowledge about the process of printing. Um, and um, my focus was no matter what, distance running news, no matter what, this was going to be a success. But I never really thought in terms of it being successful from a dollar and cent standpoint. The measure of success was the number of readers I would collect, the number of people that I would turn on to running. That's how I measured success. Uh, and uh, so I was going to college um, and uh, putting out four issues a year. And, uh, and basically, um, I mean, working day and night. I mean, I mean, there was nothing more important. And, but I also realized to make this work, I, I had to do some different things. So I started selling. Uh, I found some books about running. Uh, most of the books were either from England or from Australia. And I would uh, buy some copies. I would put those on sale. I also uh, uh, ended up selling uh, stopwatches uh, uh, that um, were not readily available. Uh, and so then that helped bring in additional revenue. Uh, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, I mean, the focus, the focus was on distance running news. And as uh, 1968 came around, I went to six issues a year. Um, 
And at that point in 1969, uh, I actually even got an office, uh, a little office. Uh, back in those days, you could get an office for like $40 a month. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm living in a little basement apartment, um, $40 a month for my basement apartment. Um, I, uh, you know, basically, uh, I, I was so focused on this. I actually ended up dropping out of college. I, I, I would come to a class. Oh my gosh, they're taking a test. And I had not even studied for it because I was, I was at the printer that night until four in the morning, getting out a, uh, an issue. I mean, not, not to come up with an excuse. And certainly the professor wasn't interested in anything like that. Hey, look, you know, so I actually, I, I dropped out of um, college um, simply because the distance running news by that point was six times a year in 1969. Um, and um, and it was just it was very consuming, and I had built it up to that point to about uh, close to ten thousand subscribers. Wow! Yeah, wow. And, only and, after a couple of years, two years. Yeah, so from sixty six, so sixty nine, we we hit ten thousand subscribers. Now the subscription was like three dollars a year. Yeah, uh, but uh, so I was really reaching quite a lot of people yeah. very quickly. And however, things were in slow motion in Kansas. I mean, basically by that point, maybe there was four or five ra road races in the entire state. Um, and so it was back in those days that I said, gosh, you know, um, I need that. Like, for example, I needed to get a Pitney Bowes mailing machine and I was quoted, okay, it's going to take three months to get it. Well, when I moved to California, I had the same machine in a week. Mm. I mean, it was just a whole different world back in those days. Right. Uh, but yeah, so it, um, I, I mean, basically, uh, a typical day would be, I would go to, I would go to call. I mean, this is while I was still in college. I would go to college. I would then go to the printer after classes and i would work there part-time until about six i would go down to let's say like the, the walgreens or whatever it may be and get a, a dinner at the lunch counter um and then i would go back to the uh printer egg press and i would work there and i knew that they had a shift that came in at 5 a.m in the morning so i made sure that uh when i would i would get back there at like maybe 8 p.m at night and uh, and I would be there until, you know, four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. And then I would pull myself out of there, go home, get a few hours of sleep, uh, go back to the class and you know, the next morning. And the, the same thing was repeated. Uh, and then I would find some time, you know, obviously to get in some running as well. Wow. And and how long did you keep that schedule? Well, that was pretty much all through 69 until I did drop out of Kansas State because it, it, it was just even more time consuming. I, I, need, yeah. I didn't have enough time in the day. Right. And so yeah. I had to make a choice. My family was definitely not, you know, in favor of it. You know, 
Bob, you need to find yourself a real job. Da, da, da. Uh, you, you need a college education. There's, there's no way around that. Um, and, uh, and by the way, I'm not in favor of, of education. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, if you do find something that you're very passionate about and, uh, and there just isn't enough time in the day, if something needs to give, yeah, yeah, what do you do? And well, so, hey, while this is a university podcast, you can speak freely. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And so, yeah, and so that was, uh, so that schedule I pretty much kept up for, uh, you know, six months or so uh, before deciding that, hey, look, I need to pack everything up. And I, and I, I was thinking that, okay, yeah, I'm back in Boston, the Boston Marathon, there was a lot of action going on back there because the marathon had been around since uh, you know the early 1900s so there you know and and so there were some pockets of runners um and so um so in 69 i was looking around as to where i really should be located because kansas really wasn't the spot and so uh i can remember flying out to california and Oh my gosh, I got together with a group of people who were runners and um, they started introducing me to everybody. I mean, here it is. I'm still virtually a, you know, I mean, not a kid anymore, but, you know, early 20s. And I can remember, oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I'm not a Jim Ryan. I'm not a, I'm not a known runner, but oh my gosh, these people are treating me like I'm somebody. Mm. like wow you know i mean oh yeah this is bob anderson he's the editor publisher of distance running news as if it was a big deal and uh, because back in kansas you would hardly ever see anybody i I mean we we had a handful of subscribers in in manhattan kansas but gosh i mean here it is I'm, i'm around people i can remember going to rockland california and there was a 50, and, and this was Rockland, California. This was the late 1969. And there was actually a 50-mile run. And that was, you know, maybe it was started the year before, a 50-mile run in Rockland, California. And in the field was Bruce Dern, the actor. And I can remember... I mean, I was introduced to Bruce Dern. <laughs> now, you can, you know, so when you're like in your early 20s and you have, I mean, and you've seen movies of, of, of an actor and now you're being introduced. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Bruce. Uh, yeah, we'd like to introduce you to Bob Anderson. He's the editor, publisher of Distance Training News. Oh, yeah, I know that publication. <laughs> Bruce Dern knew the publication. I mean, I mean, that was so. So anyway, I went, I flew back to Kansas and I said, look, you know what? I'm packing up and I'm going to California. At the same time, a writer, Hal Higdon, who had already, who was a, a, a very good runner, a very good writer, um, published books, not just on running, but, uh, you know, I mean, uh, a, a real pro. And I can remember talking to him on the phone and I said, Hal, you know what? I'm, I'm, I've decided I'm moving to California 
Um, but I'm thinking that distance running news is going to be, it's going to limit us. I, and it sounds more like a newspaper, which is not, it's a magazine. And, and I said, what do you think of the name? The now at that point it was the runner's world. And he said, I love it. And so as we packed up a 10 foot truck, I mean, he wasn't there. He was in, in Michigan, but uh, as I packed up the truck uh, and had already published the first issue, which was in the truck, and it was called The Runner's World, January 1970, ran an ad to find a driver because I had a little Mustang and uh, packed everything in a 10 foot truck. And uh, a guy uh, answered the ad and he said, oh, yeah, I'll I'll drive the truck or we can alternate back and forth, drove to Kansas with the copies of the runner's world in the back of the truck. And I was going to mail it from California, which I did and uh, drove across country, arrived in California and been here ever since. Wow. Um, I I'm curious about, um, I just, I mean, I think you mentioned a couple of times there was no internet, right? Like there was, it was so hard to, connect with people. And so I'm just even thinking about like how you even found contributors and, and to, to the publication and, and, and things like that. But I'm, I'm, I want to go back to subscribers. How did people even find this publication? Like how did, and, and where did your subscribers come from across the country? And, and I don't know, even around the world, did you get some subscribers globally, but how, how did you even get the word out about this and build that momentum to get, you know, your tens, 10,000 subscribers? That seems like Most, it would have been such a challenge. at that Oh, time. it was, it was a very big challenge. And, um, uh, it was basically word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it was like we were, um, it was like we were almost like a, 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 a cult. It was almost like, it was almost like, here it is. Um, I would, I, I would put in from the publisher, a little note about the fact, tell your friends. And I would have people, Hey, you know, uh, I have, I, I know these 10 people. Hey, Daisy. I know these 10 people. That's my Daisy. She runs, uh, she runs 30 miles a week. She's a runner. Yeah. She's a runner too. <laughs> okay. And, um, but most of it was word of mouth. One thing in 1969, I did meet the, uh, the, uh, Bert Nelson at track and field news. And, um, and he, I said, look, is there any way that I could rent your mailing list? Mm. And he actually agreed. Uh, and I act when I flew back on the plane in 1969 in October 69, um, I actually had his mailing list of 10,000 in which he had 10,000. So, and I did a mailing. And of the 10,000, by the time I left California, out of the 10,000, I think I picked up about 1,500 subscribers, wow. 15%. That's big. I mean, that is unheard of. Uh, and so, so, little, so, so 
but but again, it was word of mouth. Um, people uh, just loving what we were doing, and uh, because again, without the internet, you know. And again, I would be constantly asking people, um, uh, "Who do you know that uh, could uh, could write a uh, an article about uh, um, this?" you know, this topic or whatever. And then I also then met Joe Henderson through uh, email and phone calls. And he was working for track and field news. He was a writer. And uh, one of the reasons I came to California was I hired him full time starting in January of 1970. And he was a writer and uh, had been writing for distance running news. And I asked Joe, uh, uh, a, would he be interested in moving to Kansas? And he said, no. <laughs> uh, and, um, and that's one of the people I met when I came out in October of 69. And uh, so again, it was basically word of mouth. It was all about writing letters. It was all about making phone calls, you know, no internet, obviously. Um, and um, it, uh, you know, one thing, you know, you just built one thing on another and it just starts building up. We've talked about this um, with some other brands and some of the gear pioneers who've started companies over the years. And I just think that that common thread is is interesting that that mailing list is your lifeline, uh, whether it's a magazine or for these brands, it was catalogs. And, and that was your connection to the people, um, to your consumer and um, or to your reader. So I, I think that's an interesting common thread. And um, and just the effort that it took to build that subscriber base is um, I, I, I wanted to make sure we we covered that and uh, recognized how significant that was. Um, I, I guess, what are some of those um, early memories of you talked about moving to California and just feeling like you were, you know, you found your people, it sounds like. Um what are some of the other high points of it sounds like the rebrand and, and coming into a new place and getting connected? What are there other high points that you remember from the early seventies um, as runners world rebranded? And it sounds like you just, things sounded like they just kind of kicked into high gear as soon as you moved out that, that way. Well, certainly, you know, I mean, uh, moved to California and that was the, um, uh, in fact, we left uh, like uh, a couple of days after Christmas of 69. So I arrived on the scene uh, on New Year's Day, I believe it was. Um, and so um, found a little office at uh, 101 First Street in Los Altos, uh, hired Joe Henderson. Um, and then very quickly after that, hired um, uh uh, Lyman Dixon out of high school, dollar twenty-five an hour, um, and um, and things were you know things were definitely rolling. And uh, however, at the same time, you know we were barely making it, um, even though you know sales were coming in, and even though we had ten thousand subscribers by that point, at three dollars a year. That's only 30 grand. And, um, and you know, I mean, it, I, I, and, you know, maybe we had another, you know, $5,000 coming in from things we were selling or whatever it may be. But 
So there really wasn't that much revenue. Uh, so we were barely making it financially. One thing that really helped the whole running scene was at the 1972 Olympic Games in Munich, and Frank Shorter won the Olympic marathon. And that made national news. I mean, before that, you would hardly ever see an article like in the New York Times or, or, um, or, or any newspaper. Uh, Sports Illustrated, I think Sports Illustrated put Frank Shorter on the cover of, uh, of their magazine. Uh, and that feat really catapulted, catapulted the whole scene. Um, we, we too, as a magazine, we were putting a lot of focus on, uh, running shoes and we would, uh, we, we, we had already started doing little booklets on running shoes and, and, uh, and really wanting to tell the running world, you know, what the best shoes were. Um, and, 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 and I think that was really something very important to the industry. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, it was exciting. It was, um, um, just as much hard work as it was in, uh, in, um, in Manhattan, Kansas, maybe even more so. Um, also, uh, I think being young, um, willing to, well, this is just my nature is to kind of roll the dice and you just go for it. I mean, basically, yeah. Yeah. The money was very tight, but you just made it work somehow. You, you know, you, uh, kept focus on the fact that you wanted to turn. I wanted to turn and my staff, we wanted to turn more people on to running and we, we were runners and, at the same time, we realized that, you know, the more we knew about publishing, the better. Uh, and actually, back in those days as well, in 1972, we actually opened one of the first running stores um, mm. in that, you know, a store devoted to, uh, to running shoes and, and shorts and singlets and sweats and called Starting Line Sports. And that was in Menlo Park, a small little shop. And so we started Starting Line Sports. Soon after that, we started the mail order company called Starting Line Sports. And as you know, I mean, there's companies today like Roadrunner Sports that is hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, we were, you know, we were one of the first running stores and one of the first mail order running stores in the country um, or in the world, actually. So, uh, so again, looking at uh looking at this uh the situation that there was people would be interested in we, in fact we actually even started selling a shoe that we started bringing in called the lydiard shoe and it was an ex very expensive shoe it was twenty dollars a pair 1995 mm -hmm. and um and it was a good shoe but it would it, it, it and arthur lydiard a big time coach um very well known and he came up with a shoe made in germany um and uh but it wore out too fast and it it, it also caused blisters uh more so than i wanted and we decided not to continue selling the shoe even though 
we sold every pair we could get a, our hands on. But it wasn't, and, and, and it was a good shoe. And some people loved the shoe. Uh, but like I said, it wore out too fast. And for $20, it was just too much to spend for a shoe that would, you could only get a few hundred miles. on. Right. What, what was building a staff like? I mean, you had been doing this solo for so long. Um, at some point you become a boss. Uh, what was that transition like for you to become a manager of people? And uh, was there a learning curve there or did a lot of that come naturally to you? And, and it sounds like you were surrounded by a lot of great people, great contributors. So it sounds like you had a great um, source of talent to pull from to build a, a great team. But what are your memories of building, building a staff, building a team? You know, um, yeah, building a team, having employees um, I mean, that was a whole different world. Um, and, but I expected our staff to work just as hard as I worked. And, um, and in fact, they did. And in fact, uh, the, uh, type of people that I brought in, like Lyman Dixon, uh, now he, he actually started in, in 1972. He was a high school kid. And I brought him in part-time at first at $1.25 an hour. And right off the bat, I could count on him. And he was only like 17. Um, I could count on him day and night. I mean, he would, he would literally just work as, I mean, he would work almost as hard as I was working. And, and in fact, he, um, he worked for, uh, for me until 1984 when I sold the publication. By that point, and again, you started at $1.25 an hour. He ended up being vice president of operations. Uh, you know, that, by, by the time I sold, we had two and a half million readers. Uh, he was making like 150 grand a year. Now, that was back in 84. And uh, he, you know, he, he ended up buying two houses. He ended up being a multimillionaire. He started out at $1.25 an hour. But the one thing was that like, like one year, I, uh, just to give you an example of, of how he made things happen. In 1982, uh, I wanted to do an indoor track meet at the Cow Palace. And we needed an indoor track, again, before the internet. And I said to Lyman, Lyman, we need to buy a track, a track, an indoor track. Without the internet, within, within a few weeks, he said, okay, Bob, I found it. Uh, it's uh, $15,000, and it, it can be here in a week. You want to do it? Yeah. So we bought an indoor track. I mean, just to give you an idea that this is how, how Lyman started. Hey, I need to get these things mailed. Can, can you get it done? Absolutely. Joe Henderson from a writer's standpoint, you know, we need to, we need to, uh, well, let's do a book. Let's do a book, whatever. Uh, and um, uh, he did a book, uh, long, slow distance. Okay. When can you have a written? Oh, I can have a written in a week. Okay. Let's do it. And, and, and within a week, it would be done. And so, um, and like in, in Joe's case, he was a, he was a runner. 
uh, a good runner in high school, college, uh, and he also had the addiction of running. But in the case of Lyman, yeah, he did start running after he came, but it wasn't that he was a runner and came to Runner's World. He was just literally a guy, a kid that could make things happen and a hard worker. So it wasn't just runners. It was just, you know, we found a group of people who literally um, wanted to work hard, did work hard, and and we just kept adding more people. And um, and the next thing I know, I mean, at the peak, you know, we had we had a total staff of 350 people. So, you know. But what, I will say this, what, what this, year this would whole, that have been? Well, you see, that was in 84. We had 350 okay. people. But again, you know, we had multiple magazines. Yeah. Um, we had the, uh, I had the world record holder for the uh, marathon at the time, Derek Clayton from Australia. I hired him. Uh, he was my ad sales director. He had a team of like 12 salespeople. Um, um, so, yeah, we, we ended up with 350 people. And um, but, you know, this whole life, so this was in 84. So this whole life was before I was 36. And, yeah, I made every mistake in the, in the book. Um, and I also did a lot of things right. But, but I pretty much learned as I went along. And, uh, and, you know, when you make a mistake, okay, you accept that mistake, but you don't make it again. At least that's the idea, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, were there times where you felt like because you were so wrapped up in running a business that you it, it kept you from doing the things that you were most passionate about? Um, or did, did you see those as really working together? Because the ultimate goal was connecting people to running and the business allowed you to do that. Or, or were there times that you felt like you were you know, uh, kept from doing the things that you loved most or what, what you started with, which was you know, pulling together great stories and contributors and doing that kind of work. Well, you know, I mean, it, it running the business, what, you know, did was a big headache at many times. And particularly uh, I can remember in the early seventies, you know, getting a call from the labor department, and saying, hey, you know, we've looked at your payroll and, and all of that, the people you have working for you, and you don't have enough older people working for you. And, yeah, maybe at that point, we didn't have anybody over the age of, of 40. Okay. But as I told the person, I said, look, you know, we, we, don't, we don't hire people. And at that point, maybe we had, when, when this phone call came in, Maybe I had 20 employees. Okay, yeah, maybe nobody was over the age of 40, but nobody at that age group even applied. And so I'm, I'm supposed to go out and find somebody who's 40 years old just to meet some, some, some uh, standard that you, that you set up. And, and uh, so anyway, it was things like that that were just uh, that had nothing to do with with running, nothing to do with publishing in my mind, and um, you know some of the other paperwork and some of the other things that you know. I mean, it, it 
it, it, it took away the focus in my mind. And, um, and, 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 and it did kind of take away some of, some of the fun, but, uh, but publishing the magazine, running, um, publishing other magazines, doing books, doing newsletters, uh, doing Olympic tours. You know, we took, uh, we took, uh, uh, 70 people to the Olympics in, in Munich where people signed up and we took a group to, uh, to the 72 Olympic games. We also took 300 people to the 1976 Olympic game. Did I know anything about the tour business? No, you just, you figure it out, you know? And in fact, that was the whole deal about like someone even said, well, you can't do an Olympic tour. You, you, you know, you don't know anything about, um, uh, working with a group of people and booking airline tickets and booking uh, Olympic tickets and lining up housing or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I don't know anything about that, but you just learn, you just figure it out. Otherwise and, you're dead, right? You're, you yeah. know, otherwise you just, you stop growing. Yeah. Now at the same time I can remember. Uh, so <clears throat> just a little side story. Okay. Yeah. So you figure things out. So headed to the Olympic Games in Munich. And in my carry-on bag, I had all of our Olympic tickets. Now, again, 72 people, about probably $500 each of tickets for 72 people. And they were in my carry-on bag. And we're st I'm standing in line at the airport in Chicago. And uh, so it was a transfer. And I had my bag on the ground at a gate. I mean, at the check-in. Or back in those days, you rechecked in. I can't even remember. But anyway, the bag was there. A guy comes into the airport and steals the bag of the person in front of me and runs out of the airport. Wow. My gosh, if that had <laughs> happened, if that had happened, imagine that. I mean, basically, you know, I mean, if, if we had lost all those tickets and we came one bag away from that happening, but I, but I am a firm believer that things happen for a reason and that uh, everything is going to work out. You just keep as a marathon runner myself, you just keep plugging away that that didn't happen. And, um, but, but if that had happened, Oh my God. So, yeah. So I didn't know that part of the tour business, but anyway, yeah. So, so, but again, you, you know, you just figure this stuff out and, um, and, uh, I, I, I read as much as I could books on accounting business, um, Obviously, you know, Business Week, uh, reading about how other people did things, um, learning from other people, conversations, uh, letters, phone calls, uh, and you just absorb it all. I'm kind of like a big sponge. I just absorb it. <laughs> well, maybe before we talk about the sale um, in 84 of Runner's World, let, maybe we should touch on some of the other publications. Because I, I don't know, some of this history probably overlaps when, when you, I, I imagine you started some publications before 
um, the sale and maybe some of these other publications were part of that sale too. Um, I'm not sure, but um, why, why the appetite to create some additional publications runner's world wasn't uh, busy enough um, or enough work, or, or I imagine you saw a lot of opportunities out there for um, to take the model of what you built and apply it to other sports. Well, you know, I mean, it's, um, it, it is interesting where, um, I tend to get bored now as, as a younger guy. I mean, now I'm 74 years old and I, um, not that I've slowed down that much, but, um, uh, I tend to, uh, uh, be a little bit more sensible about certain things, but, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, I loved publishing runner's world and, um, and, um, I, I just really felt like there was a lot of other, I, I would say the word opportunity, but I think that actually the, the fact that, uh, like even before I, I, I hired Derek Clayton, our advertising sales director, that there wasn't enough sales ad sales opportunity for just runner's world. Uh, but by having other publications, like started the magazine called fit, um, and um, which was a women's fitness magazine, started uh, a, a magazine called Bike World, Soccer World, Aquatic World, Nordic World, Self-Defense World. Um, and um, so we started these other publications. And, um, and so, so that way I could actually hire a person who would be the ad sales director of all the publications. Mm. So instead of just selling ads for Runner's World, he would also be selling ads for Bike World, for Fit Magazine. And that way I could, I could afford to, to hire somebody that was more of a pro in that area, where instead of just Runner's World. So, um, uh, and so I, I, I was also always a believer in the fact that, you know, um, that by having more things going, that, that, like a person, yeah, yeah, we had people who just editorially worked on Runner's World. That's all they did. <clears throat> Later on, that, that they only worked in selling ads for Runner's World, okay? But by having these other publications, by also publishing books, um, by also having Starting Line Sports, um, you know, that, um, that we could get it. We, we would have a larger staff and by having a larger staff, we could do more things. Mm, yeah. And, um, and again, I, I think the only part that I didn't like about the larger staff was the headaches that, that you can have by having a staff. I mean, because I mean, there's always different issues and, you know, that you, you know, simple things like overtime. I mean, to me, Hey, I, I, I never thought in terms of overtime. I mean, you know, an 80 hour week just was a normal week. I mean, you know, and oh, wait, okay, so this person stayed at the company. So, yeah, he clocked out, uh, just a, as an aside example, clocked out at four o'clock, but was still in the lobby at 4 30. So, technically, because he was still on your property, you had to pay him between four and 4 30. Because he didn't leave the building, hmm. even though he clocked out. I mean, 
things like that. And I said, you know, and thinking, well, God, on one side, you have a person who wants to be paid for 30 minutes and goes to the labor board and could, could, could force you to pay him for 30 additional minutes because he never left the building. Well, I was more used to the idea of a, a Lyman Dixon who would just work his butt off, wouldn't even think about even clocking out, clocking in. You know, he would just he would just take care of the job. And at the same time, you know, I mean, as a, a dollar twenty-five an hour, because he was a hard worker, ended up becoming a millionaire based upon his hard work. Where this other person who basically would go to the, went to the labor board for 30 minutes, wh- where is this person at today? Yeah, that, that sounds like that falls under the, the challenges of uh, running a business, too, that we talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah. So there are challenges like this, but, uh, uh, but, the, but the payoff is that Runner's World turned on a lot of people to running, not just in the United States, around the world. Um, that uh, that certainly what we did as a company and the team that we put together definitely uh, did a lot for the running movement right. and definitely the whole industry. I mean, you know, the, the whole industry of running that we that we were a major part of that uh, of building the, the whole industry. Right. Yeah. And I've, I've got some follow-up thoughts on that, that I'll, I'll ask at the end um, to kind of pull the conversation all together and talk about the impact, but um, what led up to the decision to sell in, in 84? What, and, and were all these other publications a part of that? It was, was it just runner's world? Was it everything that you were touching? What went into that decision? And, and, and I guess what was a part of that sale? Well, Certainly, uh, I mean, a lot of times running a business does take a lot of time and you're at the business a lot. And so uh, I was married um, and uh, married in 71 and uh, two kids, Lisa uh, and Michael and great kids. And now they have we're grandparents anyway. Um, and yeah, I would make sure that unless there was a trade show or, or whatever, or an event that even though I worked many hours during the week, um, and many times would get home from work at eight o'clock at night or whatever it may be, uh, that I left the weekends and I made sure that the weekends were special and, uh, you know, we would do a lot of things as a family. But the bottom line is that my wife, Rita, um, filed for a divorce. And at that point, you know, you know we had all the different publications, um, Fit Magazine. We had invested a couple of million dollars in the Fit Magazine. It was beginning to turn a corner, but was not making a profit at that point. Um, and... And so I had a very um, um, a, a, a very tough divorce. And so basically the situation was that uh, to settle the divorce, 
I needed to sell Runner's World. And I did not want to sell Runner's World. Uh, I, you know, I mean, Runner's World, uh, you know, was my baby. Uh, because of Runner's World, I was even able to uh, do an interview with President uh, uh, Reagan. I was in the Oval Office. Uh, without Runner's World, that would not have happened. Yeah, I was in the press box at the Olympic Games. Uh, many of my best friends were world record holders uh, in the sport. Uh, and But I, I, I had to sell the magazine. The only way to settle the divorce. And um, so as I found the buyer, um, and I needed to do it pretty quickly, I found the buyer. And, but one of the things that the buyer, Riddell Press, um, stipulated is that I could not, I, I, for, for, uh, for five years, I had a non-compete. I had to agree that I, could, that, that I could not do anything in the sport of running. I had to, I could not continue with starting line sports. I could not continue with the corporate cup relays, which is where we had corporations that would compete. And we had a hundred and uh, uh, at one point we had 130 corporations compete on the track at like Stanford. Um, that book publishing, anything to do with running. Uh, and we had already published some bestsellers, Dr. Sheen are running. Um, starting Lung sports had to be given up. Now, at the same time, I mean, you know, they paid a lot of money for runner's work. Uh, but I had to agree to a five-year non-compete that I can do nothing in the sport of running. And, and without the base of runner's world, many of these other projects didn't make sense. And also, Riddell Press was not interested in, in um, like, we had National Running Week, uh, we used to do a five-mile race where actually still to this day, Alberto Salazar holds the, uh, uh, the American record for 8K uh, on the roads that was done at one of the events that we sponsored. The corporate cup relays, you know, they weren't interested in that. We had a fun run program where we had uh, like over 300 sites around the world. They weren't interested in that. They were only interested in publishing. And so... I had to give all of that up and that actually soured me uh, on running. I, I kept running, but I wasn't racing. And, um, and for someone with my personality to be told that you cannot do anything in the sport you love, that was pretty traumatic, quite honestly. So, I mean, so this is not a real highlight but on the other hand okay i sold the magazine settled the divorce um and but the one thing that this did give me was that um i had a much more time to run personally and i i love running so i did get back in the running and um you know have run um you know uh since that point uh but yeah a lot of projects, I mean, my God, Starting Line Sports by itself, I, I mean, you know, that by itself, you know, we were before 
Roadrunner Sports. Starting Line Sports right now today could have easily have been a $100, 200000000 million company. The fact that we got involved with selling shoes, we could have gone that direction. Um, the, uh, you know, the book publishing. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, training diaries, um, other books. Um, any, anyway, yeah, so I had, so Riddell Press was only interested in runner's world. Everything else was dropped. Um, so much of it was uh, like having, okay, Bike World. I did, I did sell Bike World earlier to Bicycle Magazine. Uh, and a lot of the other uh, publications, Soccer World was kind of before the sport of soccer really took off. Um, and, um, but, but because a lot of my, our staff was working on a lot of different projects by taking out the big project, by taking out runner's world, e even though let's say like soccer world had nothing to do with runner's world, you know, uh, things were co-mingled. So it was just as easy to get rid of all of that which I did, and um, and then started uh, Eugenia, an apparel company that sold primarily uh, swimwear, uh, and put the focus on there, and built you know Eugenia into a you know a significant company. Um, but yeah, so everything everything was sold in '84. What what happened with the other publications? You mentioned that they. I mean, you had that core of runner's world that all the others depended on and what happened with those. I mean, you sold bike we, earlier, but yeah, we did final issues. Yeah. We gave people plenty of notice. We're no longer going to be publishing self-defense world. We're no longer mm -hmm. going to be doing racing report. We're no longer going to be doing the marathoner. We're no longer going to be doing on the run. Uh, yeah. And, and so, I mean, basically now, even the staff, one of the deals that I made with Riddell Press was that, that they had to uh, take care of the payroll, even if it was bike, uh, not uh, even though it was soccer world, for six months. Everybody was given a six-month notice. The subscribers were given a six-month notice. And um, so, and so during that six months, and it was the, the idea was, hey, you're going to be paid for six months as long as you come to work. Uh, but then after six months, I mean, but once you get a, another job, you're off the payroll. And uh, so that's, you know, that's what happened. Right. Well, I mean, you mentioned how like challenging this was, even like to your core, you know, figuring out, okay, well, what do I do? Right. Running is who I am and what I do. And it's, it's been my career, you know, of course, after that, that five-year um, non-compete that that changes, but um, you know, you mentioned starting another company and um, you know, getting into product, but where, what, I mean, what did life look like after that for you, especially after the, the non-compete um, you know, it's where did you, where did you take things after that? Well, see, See, one of the things, I mean, obviously, becoming um, a publisher and the exciting world of publishing, um, 
So one of the things that we started right away, or I started right away, we did a magazine called Swimwear Illustrated. And at one time, uh, Swimwear Illustrated was the third fastest growing magazine of all magazines. Hmm. And, um, and the, only, the only two magazines ahead of us was L Magazine hmm. and also a magazine that listed all of the uh, different uh, TV channels. And hmm. it was like a TV guide. But it, uh, uh, it, it was a large format magazine. I can't think of the name of it. But anyway, so, um, I mean, we, we literally sold like 150,000 copies at one time on the newsstand. The, the most we ever sold a runner's world, well, outside of the shoe issue and the Olympic issue in, in 84, the standard sale was more like 75,000 on the newsstand. I mean, most of our readers were subscribers. So, um, so I knew how to, um, to run a business and, uh, and the Eugenia company, you know, at, that grew to 350 employees after just a few years. So, um, and that's without the support of, of, of runner's world. Um, and then we, you know, we got involved with some other um, mail order um, company, I mean, mail order catalogs. So, uh, but yeah, but it wasn't running. And, um, and so basically after selling runner's world to Adele press, it was the, the running aspect of my life was just about my personal running. Now I, I, I have gotten back into running, um, into the running world, um, uh, but uh, most of that was not until about 2010. And it, then every promotion that we did for Eugenia, we included a 5K race. So, you know, I mean, we, we were still involved. But, but starting in about 2010 or so, or maybe 2008, um, got back into, you know, like other things related to running, starting a sport called double racing. Uh, and also doing a website called My Best Runs, which My Best Runs, we do have uh, uh, last report, we have about a million unique uh, visitors annually. So it's growing. That's great. What, why can't you stay away from the business side of running? You keep coming back to it. What, it's just, just who you are. Why, what keeps you coming back to it from a business perspective? And besides your, the personal angle, which you obviously continue to, to run and are engaged in. Well, you know, I mean, I can clearly say that I, as I've said before, uh, I'm an addicted runner. I, I'm addicted to running. And I think part of that addiction, or when you are addicted to something, that it seems like you want to almost get other people addicted and, and i'm not back in the running world nor what did i ever get started in the running world to actually make money in my mind you work hard and the money comes and yeah i mean you know i mean i've made millions of dollars through running but um 
And I'm not back in it to make additional money. I'm just back in it because I love running and, um, and I just want to tell others about the sport. Now, the sport is so different today. Millions and millions of people are running. You know, there are races every weekend. Now, you know, I mean, COVID obviously messed things up for a year and a half. But, you know, there's races every weekend. Uh, now, running is a professional sport. Uh, up until about 1987, after I sold, I mean, when I was publishing Runner's World, if a runner was paid anything, $5, they couldn't run in the Olympic Games. They would be a professional. Mm-hmm. And where today, I mean, there are uh, many runners who make more than a million dollars a year just by winning races and, and endorsements and all that. Um, but the only money that runners were making when I was publishing Runner's World were under the table. And, and, um, um, because if it was on top of the table, they couldn't compete in the Olympic games. Right. So, well, I mean, so, so the sport has completely changed and, and, and not just running, you know, other sports, um, you know, have changed as well, but, but certainly running has, is very different today because of the fact that it's a professional sport. Right. Yeah. What, what are the other major changes that if you've seen um affect running i mean you mentioned people running trails in the in the in the 60s um but now we know trail running is a much more established you know subset of of running and you have ultras right that's that's a more recent relatively more recent phenomenon what are some of the other major um changes or evolutions of the industry that you've seen in that well, cer- yeah, yeah, certainly ultra running. I mean, that whole world, I mean, that is, uh, is, it, it has grown so fast. Um, um, and certainly let, let's say like countries like Kenya and Ethiopia. I mean, I can remember when the first Kenyan runner, uh, Kip Kino, uh, you know, back in the, uh, er- early seventies, I mean, he was like, I mean, there was hardly anybody in Kenya. I mean, you look at the Boston Marathon, uh, you look at other major races. I mean, you know, there was uh, runners from Japan, runners from Finland, runners from the United States, and there was hardly any runners from Kenya or Ethiopia. And now, like, like the, the major sport in Kenya is what these days? Running. I mean, and there's... Uh, by the last count, there's like 80,000 runners in Kenya that are interested in, 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 in running professionally. 80,000. Of course, there aren't that many spots available. Uh, and Ethiopia is about the same. So, uh, and now when you go to a race, like the Boston Marathon, of the top 10, they're all Kenyans and Ethiopians. And their whole world is nothing but running. Like in Kenya, in fact, we have a uh, we we also have the a training camp that we've started in uh, outside of Nairobi, about an hour outside of Nairobi. Um, the the Kenyan Athletics Training Academy, uh, where we're training about uh, right now, we have about sixteen runners there 
training, living, training, all that. Um, but their whole life is running. They run three times a day. Uh, their diet, uh, their focus, uh, and it, the ability there is unbelievable. So, so, def so definitely countries like Kenya and Ethiopia in developing uh, top runners, um, this is fairly new. Um, definitely the ultra scene, the whole professionalism of, uh, of running. Um, and, um, but certainly too now, there, there's, there, there's a lot of challenges because as running has become biz big business, there's the challenges that World Athletics, which is the governing body of the sport located in Monaco, um, the, there, the, it also presents a lot of challenges. One of the challenges is runners wanting to, to, to take shortcuts to success. A lot of uh, doping issues, a lot of, uh, you know, people, um, you know, doing all sorts of different things to try to get an edge so they can win part of the millions of dollars that are, is out there awarded to them. Clearly, the whole r women running movement, you know, back in 67, the first runner, um, the first woman runner, uh, or actually the second, uh, was competing in the Boston Marathon, and she was actually tackled. Um, Catherine Switzer was actually tackled to be thrown out of the race because she was a woman, and a woman was not allowed to run a marathon. So the whole women running movement. Uh, and how that's developed. Uh, the whole master running, I mean, gosh, um, you know, um, like I've noticed, you know, even in my age group, 70 to 74, um, gosh, the performances or the talent out there in my age group compared to what was there 10 years ago, even. Uh, unbelievable because because at the same time we've grown up with with running I, I mean i've been running since since 1962 and uh and so at 74 i mean i've grown up i i have you know i have the dna yeah i, I mean you know maybe the world record holders at my age when they were world record i mean when they were in their 20s i can you know i can i can run better than they do now because everyone doesn't age the same but the quality per performances of, of older people is out there. And the fact that, I mean, I saw the other day, we did a post on my best runs and a woman in um, India set the world record for the hundred meters for age group, 105 plus she's 105, an Indian woman. And, she ran like 47 seconds for 100 meters. And it's the world record for the age group 105 plus. Hmm. I mean, I mean, I mean, that would be unheard of. So, so people, you know, older people run. Uh, certainly the, the whole way how running is accepted. I mean, I mean, in today's world, a lot of people just know that, hey, look, even running five minutes a day, is going to add years to your life. And, 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 and there's less debate about that. I mean, I, when I was running, you know, when I was publishing Runner's Roll, 
oh yeah, I, I, I run every day. It was like, why? Well, you know, I mean, in today's world, like if you said that you ran every day, I would dare say that people would, would say, wow, that's great. And it would, I mean, and the common person would not be asking you why, mm. because it's more accepted. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And certainly the whole industry. Now, um, the running shoes in today with this, you know, the, this special plate. And uh, I mean, definitely running shoes have advanced in the world athletics uh, governing body does accept the running shoes, but clearly they, they, you know, the, the running shoes today uh, definitely give people an edge. The tracks, I mean, keep in mind when Billy Mills won the Olympic gold medal back in Tokyo, that was on cinders. Well, today, look at the tracks. I mean, all weather, beautiful. I mean, the surfaces are great. The shoes are great. Um, so from a technology standpoint, and also, you know, the diet, you know, goo packets, uh, you know, I mean, just the diet, the equipment, the technology is, is, is unbelievable. And the other thing, like, for example, when I was um, even running in my 50s, which is only 20 years ago, right? Uh, when I was running in my 50s and I was able to, you know, train and focus on running and um you know that was before garmin or maybe garmin was out there but but certainly not at the level that it is now you know garmin a, a watch right um that i would have to drive a course in my car and know my checkpoints okay i'm doing a six mile run i have to and, and at this telephone pole, it's going to be the mile mark. At this telephone pole, it's going to be the two-mile mark. Well, my gosh, when I go out running now, I get back to my run. I have all my mile splits. I have a map of the course that I ran. I have how many calories I burnt. I have how many steps per minute. I mean, it's fantastic. And literally, when I was even in my 50s, 20 years ago, that didn't exist. And I mean, it's, it, it's, it's unbelievable. So the technology of that, um, I mean, you can, I, I can look down my watch and say, oh yeah. So, okay. I, okay. I just did that mile at 745 pace. I'm right where I want to be. Well, we take that for granted. That didn't exist. You know what I mean? So, so it's the technology aspect of running has so much has improved the sport in my mind. I mean, to be able to see a map of where you ran is incredible yeah. in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that, that was a really helpful overview of, I think, where the current state of the industry and maybe even where we're heading um, from your perspective. I, that was, that was really helpful. Um, well, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I certainly want to recognize your impact on the industry and want to hear your thoughts on what you think your impacts and contributions have been. Um, I know that you you mentioned this briefly, but being invited to the White House and and being recognized for your contributions to health and wellness. I mean, that's, you know, at the highest levels of power being recognized um, for the impact, you know, from 
you know, going back to, you know, a 17 year old kid uh, putting together a publication, I, I don't know, could you ever imagine yourself being someone who has impacted the industry, impacted lives, um, contributed to health and wellness? I mean, I don't know how you could ever envision that. Um, I mean, how, how do you feel about your impacts um, and your contributions um, looking back um, on your career? That you're still in. I, I we're talking about this like you've you're you're done with your career. You're obviously still very involved and and still contributing. But what are your thoughts as you reflect back on your impacts? I'm proud of the fact that uh, myself and the team I built around me, um, you know, uh, had a definite impact into people's lives. And in fact, I can remember getting letters from people saying, Bob, I just want to thank you and your team for saving my husband's life. Uh, I was in a grocery store uh, not too long ago, and I picked up a copy of Runner's World. And I brought it home, and my husband started reading it. And because of Runner's World, my husband started jogging. Then my husband got hooked and actually started racing. He lost like 50 pounds. And he was out of shape. He, you know, his lifestyle was, was not good. Family history uh, of heart disease. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for saving my husband's life. We would get letters like this uh, and phone calls uh, you know, on a fairly regular basis. Mm. I mean, that's exciting. I mean, I mean, how often can you do something uh, outside of being a medical doctor or, or uh, maybe arriving on a scene in a, in a, a, a tricky situation and, and helping someone out? But <clears throat> to help change someone's lifestyle, to add years to their life, uh, that's pretty darn exciting. Um, certainly sitting down with President Reagan in the Oval Office, and I can remember uh, outside the office and having um, FBI agents, two of them in particular, I can remember, coming up to me as we're waiting to go in um, asking for my autograph, asking me uh, or telling me, oh, my gosh, I've been reading Runner's World for, you know, ages. Um, I, exciting. Or actually, one time, uh, while actually still publishing Runner's World, um, we were invited to a barbecue uh, that uh, Dr. Kenneth Cooper was doing in, in Dallas. And at the barbecue actually was hosted by Lamar Hunt, you know, the guy who founded the uh, American Football League mm. and uh, uh, I think owned the Kansas City Chiefs or whatever it may be. And at this barbecue, Lamar Hunt's wife came up to me and introduced herself. And... Um, it's always interesting how a lot of times famous people, they introduce themselves, not realizing. Like one time I met Clint Eastwood and he introduced himself. <laughs> and I thought, hey, wait a minute. 
I, I, I of course know who you are. <laughs> anyway, but Lamar Hunt's wife saying, I love Runner's World. I read it in the bathtub. <laughs> I'll never forget that. <laughs> anyway, anyway, yeah. I mean, um, it just makes you feel good. It makes you feel that it, it, it's not about, um, you know, running a, uh, a multi-million dollar operation and, um, and, 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 and making all this money. I mean, that just comes from hard work, but the, these kind of little stories that still stay with me, um, you know, and, and knowing that you had an influence on people's lives, knowing that, you know, um, you know, that, that, uh, uh, you know, even today with, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the different things we're doing and we're putting on, you know, uh, like we have a race coming up at, at uh, by the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, we'll have several hundred runners in that race um, that you just have an influence on people's lives. And that's what is exciting to me. And at the same time, knowing that uh, while publishing Runner's World, there was a great a, a, an unbelievable uh, change of running shoes. Running shoes improved very quickly, and it was because we put a lot of emphasis on uh, uh, on quality running shoes. And we would spend, you know, twenty five thousand dollars just in testing running shoes and then reporting the facts. Um, so, so, I mean, that's what really sticks in my mind. And, uh, and I'm glad to know that we've had uh, a, a big influence on the lives of a lot of people. I mean, you know, maybe, you know, I mean, millions of people. And, um, and that, that if, if I've added, if, if from what I've done and because of my love for the sport, just to know that I've maybe added a day, a week, a month, a year to someone's life because of, of me spreading the word um, about running. Uh, wow, that's exciting. Well, I'm going to bring really my last question back to the beginning, I think, because um, I didn't ask this at the beginning I, when I probably should have, but this might even be a better time. But um, at its core, why do you keep running? I get that it's an addiction, but um, I guess what is it about that activity that that just keeps you coming back besides being addicted to it? Running is something that I realized from the beginning that I had some ability. Um, and I was not a very good student in school. Um, sports like baseball or football, um, I did. I just didn't have the skill. Um, yeah, I can play tennis, but I'm not a great tennis player. But even at 74, uh, with the training I'm doing, and 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 now I do include walking. Like right now, I've been averaging the last year and a half 60 miles a week. Uh, but half of it is walking and uh, certainly my little dog, Daisy, um, that, you know, she gets in about half of that. And then I do the other half without her. Um, and, um, 
there is something so exciting. Like the, the other day, yesterday, in fact, um, I, I, ran, uh, I ran to lunch. And by the way, I'm a firm believer in getting in the miles here and there. So uh, my wife and I, Catherine, we, uh, there's a lunch spot that we go to because we just really, lo- really like the people, like the atmosphere, and we like getting out of the office. Uh, and it's 2.3 miles away from our office. And it's through the Google campus, and then we end up at, uh, at uh, the, the restaurant, 2.3 miles. So yesterday, uh, because, because uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm in sweats or whatever it may be, and most of the time I, I walk and run. But yesterday I decided to run the whole thing. And, and even though starting off really slow, you know, I was able to do 2.3 miles at uh, 8.59 pace. I mean, that used to be just a jog for me. Uh, and I know I could do this course faster than that, but there's something about pushing it. There's something about the idea of not just getting in the miles. And there is that, um, there is that challenge, and, and, and I love challenges. Um, and, uh, but there's something about pushing it. There's something about bringing, you know, you know, bringing your heart rate up, going that extra mile at the end, having a good time. And so it's all, it's all about running. I mean, my whole life is built around running and my day is not complete without a run. Again, you know, my idea is that, hey, look, you know, if uh, someone listening to this uh, um, uh, gets into running, a running program, wow, wow, what a great benefit that is. And, uh, um, and, it's, and, and it's not that, you know, that I, um, I'm excited about the fact that, you know, that I uh, w- would receive any credit or whatever for uh, the running movement. Uh, I don't, I, I don't totally care about that. Hey, but if you get if, it like Chase, I, I haven't even asked you if you run yourself, but um, if not, do you run? I don't, I'm more of a cyclist. Okay. Well, cycling is still very, I mean, cycling, walking, running, but uh, have you ever tried running? I have. Mm-hmm. And you didn't like it. Well, I think I need to get over the the point where it hurts my 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 lungs. I got to get that through that initial phase. You know, my wife, uh, when we first met, she was 40 years old. She had never had run in her life. So I said, look, we're going to do a 30-day running program. And at first, you know, it was like maybe a half mile, whatever. And after 30 days, she became hooked on running. Now, since then, she did pick up an aroma, so she can't run now. But, but I knew that she got to the point of she started out as a jogger and then became a runner. I knew she became a runner when she said, okay, Bob, I'll see you in about an hour. I'm going out for six miles without me, without me pushing or whatever. But you have you have to get past that take a lap syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of football players, a lot of athletes, running was used as a punishment. Okay, we didn't like the way you, you were 
he did this drill or whatever, take a lap. Well, that's not running. That's punishment. But once you get past the fact that, let's say, like when you go out for a run, you're talking about your lungs burning or whatever it may be. Hey, like yesterday, even at age 74, hey, I'm breathing like, like I am right now at, six, at, at 8.59 pace, you know, because you just, your body gets used to it. And then once you get past the jogger stage, that is when running is so much ex- fun. It's exciting. And, uh, and I've done quite a bit of bike riding. I mean, not nearly as much as I'm sure you do, but, um, and now with my balance, I don't ride a bike at all, but, um, you need to try it. Yeah. That's good advice. You need to try this. I think I will. I'll have to, I'll keep you updated. Keep me updated. (laughs) And and I'll tell you, and the best time to start is today Mm. or worst case tomorrow. And you have running shoes or something similar. Mm-hmm. Okay. And start off by uh, running, walking. Start off by literally go out, put on your shoes, go out and walk for a bit. Then, then do, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take 50 steps. I mean, and, and know that you can do more than that, but go ahead and do 50 steps. Count it 50. One, two, three, yeah, right. Then walk a bit, then do a count of 100. And then do this for a few days and then see, and then get to the point where, okay, and it may take a week or two or three or four. Well, I, that you've been so generous with your time. Um, I've just appreciated getting to know more about your life and work and you've just been so generous and in, in our previous conversations as well, talking about your work. Um, and, um, I, I just, I hope more people can, um, I think a lot of people know, but I'm happy that we can contribute a little bit to at least getting our students to be more aware of your contributions and, and get them even more familiar where, with where this industry has been and where it's going. So I just appreciate you sharing your story. This has been really fun for me. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.